Let me invite you to stand for the reading from God's Word. We're looking this morning at Romans chapter 4, and from verse 16 to 17, you'll find it in the worship folder right in front of you, as well as in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 4, and from verse 16 to 17. And as we turn now to God's Word, let us pray. Our Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. Our Lord and Redeemer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, Romans chapter 4. And from verse 16 to 17. (laughs) That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace. And be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law. But also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Do please sit down. Well, it's a great joy to be with you this morning on this wonderful Sunday, beautiful music we've heard, and wonderful infant dedications. What a great joy to be together. The Force Awakens. That is the title for the next in the Star Wars uh, series. It's episode 7, I think, or maybe it's 17. I forget now. There are so many. Uh, Like most people, I have enjoyed a Star Wars movie or two. In fact, uh, we have a lightsaber in our basement. But it's interesting, isn't it, to reflect on this force. May the force be with you. It is a reflection of our attitude to spirituality these days in some ways. Surveys say uh, we are increasingly a people who are spiritual but not religious. Which seems to mean not just that uh, we are wary of organized religion but that we resist the traditional definitions of God as Christians have thought about God down through the ages. God, to many people, is more like a force, in other words, an energy 
or a general principle of moral excellence or some mystic power that you can tune into through yoga or whatever it is. And this is actually then why many people today find it difficult to accept the uh, moral certainty and convictions that uh, Orthodox Christians are bringing to bear on the various cultural issues of our own day. It's not so much that they always disagree with the particular matter under discussion at uh, any moment in the news. It is that they are wary of Certainty. Sure, believe that if you want, but don't make anyone else have to believe it too. What is true for you is not necessarily true for me. And so deep in our culture's acceptance of what is true, there is now a conviction that convictions are culturally defined by how you were brought up, by the values you were taught as a child, by the country in which it is that you were born, by the city in which you live, by the culture, culturally defined rather than certain or absolute, much less. All of which is why this passage in front of us today is so important. It is telling us that the faith given to Abraham, the faith that Christians have as children of Abraham by believing in Jesus, that faith, Paul says, is guaranteed. The word guaranteed in English, as in the original, has this sense of certainty, conviction, definiteness. That is the kind of thing you can bank your life upon. Those of us who know a little bit about church history will know that the doctrine that's been taught in this passage used to be referred to as assurance. It was rather hard of the 18th century Great Awakening. In the 1700s, there was this movement of revival that swept across America and throughout um, the transatlantic world at the time. It pushed back for a while immorality and the the sort of anti-Christian tendencies of the age. We can know for sure that what God says is the way to be saved is the way to be saved. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not even a matter of faith, if by faith we mean what our culture today means by faith. That is a private, personal, indefinite, uncertain, best guess. Oh, it is a true promise. Actually, I think this passage is really, uh, Paul has in it, really in its background, a, a picture of building a house. So we tend to think these days that spirituality is based on faith. Well, Paul says, in a sense, that's not right. 
Faith is the top layer, not the foundation. There is faith that is based on grace, which in turn is based on the guarantee of this true promise, and even that has a further foundation because it is based on the character and nature of God himself. Paul says, the God, this is, who brings the dead back to life and calls things that are not as though they were. That is the God who raises the dead, who is the creator of the whole universe, ex nihilo, from nothing, that is. The God of resurrection and the God of creation. So Paul is giving the Romans assurance that what they believe is true is true. <laughs> and he wants us to have that assurance as well. So first faith, then grace, then the guarantee, then God himself. First faith. Paul begins by saying this is why it depends on faith. And by it, he means the promise to Abraham that he's talking about throughout this chapter. Paul was saying that this is why the promise depends on faith. Now, it's interesting immediately to notice that Paul is not afraid to ask the question, why? Some people think we should never ask why we believe, but Paul, Paul does ask why. After all, if we do not ask why, we're unlikely to find out why. Rudyard Kipling put it like this, I keep six honest serving men, they taught me all I knew, their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. Why is it by faith? Is this merely arbitrary? Paul has been saying that we're made right before God by faith. He has been saying that no one can be saved by their own moral efforts. Now, law is important. We are to keep the law. But law does not save. It never has. It never can. There is no power in it to transform lives. That transformation comes through faith, Paul is saying. But why? Because, Paul says, that way the promise may rest on grace. In other words, faith is not the foundation. Faith is a channel. Faith is a way of receiving something. Faith is not the basis, the rock upon which we build our lives. Faith is empty hands. Faith is trust. Now, those of us who know our Bibles will realize in the book of Hebrews, uh, faith is said to be the assurance of things hoped for and the substance of things not seen, but only if that faith is in the right things. Paul is saying that it is by faith in order that it might be by grace. Now, I wonder whether that's how we view faith. Certainly, our culture does not. Do we view faith as foundational, our own private opinion? You know, sometimes we'll come, people will come up to us, won't they, and they'll say, uh, I wish I had your faith. 
But Paul is saying faith is not the basis of our salvation. Faith is just a way of receiving something. So saying to a person, I wish I had your faith, it seems to me, is a bit like saying to someone, I wish I had your bank account. You don't really wish you had their bank account. You wish you had the content of their bank account. So faith is simply a place to put something. The uh, philosopher of science, uh, Thomas Kuhn, in his groundbreaking book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution, said then that all scientific steps forward came about in a similar sort of way. He called them a paradigm shift. We have a certain amount of evidence, and then we formulate a theory that best fits the evidence, and then that, he said, is our paradigm within science. Faith is just a bit like that. It is the way our minds put together a framework around the data in front of us. Faith is the human way of connecting to something or someone. And so the, the person who trusts someone who's really not a very good person, even a criminal, in, in this sense has no more or less faith than the person who trusts a very good person, a counselor or, or something. Faith is not what is received. Faith is the way of receiving something. So that is why when Jesus said that the person who has the faith the size of a mustard seed, a very tiny seed, can move a mountain. In other words, it's not the amount of faith that counts. It's where you put it. And that's all what Paul is saying. It depends on faith because it leads to something else, and that is grace. So first layer, faith. Second layer, grace. The original actually makes the sentence more dramatic than it appears in the English because there's no verbs in it. Literally, it is, therefore by faith, in order, according to grace. Therefore by faith, in order, according to grace. So faith is necessary so that it might be according to grace. What does that mean? It means we come to God with open hands and he fills them to overflowing with the gift of his grace and unmerited favor. We come to God vulnerable with our brokenness in order that we might be saved by his graciousness. We come to God real about our evil and sin in order that his love might cover over a multitude of sins. Now, grace without faith, well, that's cheap grace, isn't it? That's the person who assumes that whatever they do, whatever they say, whatever they believe, grace will always be there. That's a presumption of grace and a travesty of faith and a tragedy of a life lived wrong. I wonder whether you are in need of grace this morning. Uh, This was found on an American soldier shot in Italy during World War II. It's Remembrance Sunday. 
look, God, I've never spoken to you. But now I want to say, how do you do? You see, God, they told me you didn't exist. Like a fool, I believed all of this. Last night from a shell hole, I saw your sky, and I figured right then they told me a lie. Had I taken the time to see the things you'd made, I'd have known they weren't calling a spade a spade. I wonder, God, if you'd shake my hand. Somehow I feel you'd understand. Funny, I had to come to this hellish place before I had time to see your face. Well, I guess there isn't much to say. But I'm sure glad, God, that I met you today. I guess the zero hour will soon be here, but I'm not afraid since I know you're near. The signal. Well, God, I'll have to go. I like you lots. This I want you to know. Look now, this will be a terrible fight. Who knows, I may come to your house tonight. Though I wasn't friendly with you before, I wonder, God, if you'd wait at the door. Look, I'm crying, me, shedding tears. I wish I'd known you these past many years. Well, I have to go now, God. Goodbye. Strange, since I met you, I'm not afraid to die. Are you in need of grace this morning? I know I am. The human condition is such that we all are. Paul has been saying there is none righteous, not even one. Some there are who are fearful of failure. Some there are who are frightened of judgment. Some there are who sense their unworthiness. Some there are who have need of help at home with their children, with their husbands, with living as a single man or woman with their schoolwork, it is by faith that it might be by grace. Of course, the only ones who are not worthy of it are those who refuse it, who will not receive the gift of grace. First layer, faith. Second layer, grace. Third layer, Guaranteed. Because it is by faith, it is therefore by grace, which means, Paul says, it is guaranteed. How is it guaranteed, Paul? It's guaranteed as a result of this promise given to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, of which we, as we saw last week, are the heirs, the inheritors. Faith is not the foundation. Grace is not the foundation. There is another layer underneath, which is the promise of God, which is guaranteed. In other words, God keeps his promises. What he has said he will do, he will do. You can take it to the bank. You can rely upon this 
guarantee. Well, then it's important to know what it is that he has promised. What has God promised? He has promised that we would stand right before God now and forever. Chapter 4, verse 3. Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, verse 16. This promise is to all nations through faith in Christ. So that is the promise. The promise is not that we would be healthy. The promise is not that we would be wealthy. The promise is not that we'll be clever or beautiful or famous. The promise is quite simply that we will be able to stand before God free from all sin and covered with the righteousness of Christ. That promise is guaranteed. Now, once that is understood, it will change your life. Now, certainly it can be misused. Uh, There are people who take this promise and misuse it to say to themselves, well, it doesn't really matter how I live. I have this ticket to heaven. But God does not promise that those who do not actually receive the promise will receive the promise. God does not promise that those who actually reject the promise will accept the promise. Well, no, be holy, God says, as I am holy. Trust in me, receive grace. And that promise of righteousness is guaranteed. But if we live a life of faithlessness, we have not received the transforming power of grace, and we have no basis upon which to claim a promise that we have rejected. True faith in Jesus is based on receiving transforming grace, which then is guaranteed by the promise of God that we will stand righteous before God. Now, this assurance can be abused, but that does not mean it is not to be rightly used. You know, in recent days in the church in America, there's been a great desire to rediscover the doctrines of holiness and godliness in the church. There have been some people feeling that some preachers have so preached grace that they've ended up almost denying the importance of character. Well, let that never be us. We must not only have faith, but have that based on transforming grace. But if that is the case, transforming grace, let us not run to the other extreme whereby we cannot be certain, confident, guaranteed. See, rightly employed, this guarantee becomes the basis for action. It gives us a personal freedom to be able to do for God rather than run from God. It allows us to look at our critics and face them without fear. It allows us to look at our failures and move on without regret. It allows us to be who God wants us to be rather than hide in a cave of self-doubt. It is a foundation for a life well 
lived. You see, to build a house, you need a firm foundation. And to build your life, you need a firm foundation too. The strength and security of that foundation does not make you less likely to build a strong house, but more likely. And the strength and security of God's guaranteed promise of salvation does not make us less likely to build a strong house of mission and holiness and evangelism, but more likely. See, the person who holds on to faith or grace without this guaranteed promise is like someone who's trying to build a house without a foundation. Faith is not the foundation. Grace is not the foundation. Underneath both is the sure Word of God. Let me encourage you then to read it. John Owen, the great Puritan, put it like this. What a man is in secret in these private duties, he meant Bible reading and prayer. What a man is in secret in these private duties of Bible reading and prayer, that he is in the eyes of God and no more. First layer, faith. Second layer, grace. Third layer, the guaranteed true promise. But there's a fourth layer underneath all, and that is God himself. And so we come to that enigmatic, odd, unusual phrase of Paul's at the end of verse 17. He writes this, In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Well, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the true foundation of the house is not even the concrete foundation, but the ground upon which the foundation is built. So a house built on sand falls flat. A house built on a rock stays strong. So Paul is saying, Abraham, when he heard God's promise about the child that he would have, about the many nations that would receive salvation through God's promise to him, Abraham believed on the basis of something even more than the words that he heard. He believed on the basis of the person who spoke them. Look at it like this. Uh, there's a, uh, I hear there's a race in America called the Daytona 500. Is that right? I have to say I've never watched a single one, so this is an illustration off the internet rather than off personal experience, but nonetheless, I think it works. And uh, there's a race called the Daytona 500, and there's a particularly well-known driver called Earnhardt, is that right? Now imagine Earnhardt comes up to you and says, you know, give me the keys to your car, I'll show you a thing or two. I can take that thing to 120 miles. Here's a racetrack, I'll show you. Well, you might, okay, it's Earnhardt. Let's see what he can do. That'd be fun. 
Say you have a 13-year-old son. And the 13-year-old comes up to you and says, uh, Dad, Mum, I can take that car of ours to 120 miles an hour. Let me have a go. How do you feel? Our confidence in the words spoken relies on the person who speaks them. And so Abraham, Paul was saying, did not just believe, he believed in the presence of God. That is, he believed in this God who spoke. See, this is ultimately the difference between those who accept the Bible and those who do not. For those who do not, they come across miracles in the Bible and they find it all quite incredible and bizarre and unbelievable. But for those who do believe the Bible, such miracles are no problem because they believe in the presence of God. That is, they believe that God can do anything. And so when the Bible records him as doing something miraculous, like a virgin birth, or when the Bible asks us to believe something or do something difficult, some area of holiness that we struggle with and need to fight We believe and accept because of who is speaking, not just what is said. You see, behind most rejection of Scripture then is actually a rejection of the God who spoke it. But Abraham, Paul is saying, believed in the presence of God. And in particular, he believed in this God who, Paul says, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That is, Abraham realized that God had made everything from nothing, calls into existence the things that are not. That is, he is the creator And that God is the God of the living and could raise the dead. He gives life to the dead. And therefore, in Abraham's mind, this creator, this God who can raise the dead, it was then thoroughly rational to believe that if God wanted to give him and Sarah a child, even when they were both so old, then God would just do it. In other words, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. What, though, makes that saying hard for some of us to swallow is because it rushes or appears to rush quickly over the first foundation of all, namely God. What kind of God is it who says it? Is it the God of moralistic, therapeutic deism, as David Wells calls the prevailing view of God among evangelicals today? That is the God who is distant, deistic, not involved, distant. Moralistic, just rules about how to live a good life. Therapeutic, he wants you to be happy. Well, if that's the God, then, well, why should I believe what he says? Is it the God who changes with the passing traditions and opinions of the ages, who learns and grows like the God of open theism? Well, that's the case. Why should I trust what he says here has any relevance to today? 
Is it the God of some strict background who's always angry? Or the God who's bound up in your minds with some personality of some preacher who, let us be frank, disappointed you? Or is it the God of uh, enlightenment secularism, like the philosopher Voltaire, who just said, well, it's God's job to forgive, and therefore, well, you do whatever you like, it's his job to forgive. Why should I do what he says? Is it the God of a vague force? What sort of God is this? And so Paul ends rising to a crescendo of a mini doxology, a mini praise to God. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not. In other words, he's the God of resurrection power and creation power. Now, if that is the God who says it, then when he does say it, it does settle it. I suppose in some ways you could say this whole passage here is a bit like a, you know, the three little pigs story. You know the story. The different versions these days, they get more and more politically correct each year. You know, the first little pig builds a house of straw and the wolf comes along and huffs and puffs and blows it down and then the next little pig builds a house of sticks and Wolf huffs and puffs and blows it down. The third little pig, you know, he, final little part of the story, he builds a house of bricks and the wolf huffs and puffs and it doesn't blow it down. Except here, there's a final foundation. As Jesus said, he who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he is like the one who builds the house of his life upon a rock. What if it's him who speaks? Then that settles it. It settles it when he says, be holy as I am holy. It settles it when he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. It settles it when he says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It settles it when he says that for those whose faith is based on grace and whose grace is based on the guarantee of the true promise and whose guarantee is based upon this one true God, then for them salvation is Certain, assured, guaranteed, because it is based upon the true promise of God. Let us pray.
Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to base our lives upon you yourself and to build our lives upon that foundation. And so, Lord, we repent of our sins and put our trust in you to receive grace based upon the guaranteed promise that you, yourself, the God who calls things into existence, the God who gives life, to the dead, you yourself said, in whose name we pray.